0: everybody. Welcome to my show. My name is Spencer Walsh. Thank you so much for joining us. This is News Flash. Here are the headlines for our live Monday show. Today we're talking about the Trump administration. They have authorized the, if the administration. Donald Trump himself has authorized his administration to begin working with Joe Biden on the presidential transition. Finally, roughly three weeks after the election itself. Meanwhile, COVID-19 continues to worsen up and down the country as the vaccine race also rages on. There has been somewhat of an interesting push or kind of campaign led by some people to have you believe that Donald Trump is a president of peace. He is a dove president who is trying to draw down troops. We'll explain why that really, when you come down and look at it, is a myth. And it's going to be a long four years, folks. We'll take a look at the liberal psyche and how things may change in terms of who's allowed to criticize what in a Biden administration and what the left's response should be in regards to that. Thank you so much for joining us here today on this edition of Newsflash here as we let and anxiously await the beginning of this transition that has finally happened here. As yeah, so big news here is Emily Murphy, the administrator, again, New York Times reporting here, the administrator of the General Services Administration on Monday, formally designated President-elect Joe Biden as the apparent winner of the presidential election, providing federal funds and resources to begin a transition. And so, yeah, now he's not going to have to ask for money kind of pathetically on Twitter. Uh, People were giving him a lot of grief for that. It was, of course, in, in the middle of this pandemic where... Like the economic strain, just the strain on everybody and everything cannot just be greater at this point. And now what do we have Biden doing? Asking for money after probably the most successful well-funded campaign in American history is now asking for money for the transition here. He will not have to do that because of this decision today. Uh, President Trump on Twitter, Monday night, said that he was authorizing his staff to begin initial protocols for the transition process. He did not concede the election and vowed to persist with efforts to undermine the vote that have so far proved fruitless. And, of course, we talked a little bit on the last show about why that is and how really there just is not going to be any kind of path forward for him. And there hasn't been for a long time. And now really what we're saying is more than ever today, finally. as some of these votes were able to get certified. Uh, Republican senators really just couldn't pretend like there was some kind of feasible logical path back to victory for him, uh, so they pretty much abandoned him, uh, abandoned his kind of claim that the the election has is still in doubt, and pretty much called on Trump and instead the words: Donald Trump lost, Joe Biden won. Um, it's been great. I voted for Joe Biden. Or I voted for Donald Trump. You see a lot of Republicans are saying that today, but um, he lost. So that is a pretty big step to take for sure. Um, President Trump said that these profile uh, protocols would be authorized as uh, Murphy's decision came after several more senior Republican lawmakers denounced her delay in allowing the peaceful transfer of power to begin. And this is something that she was really holding off on as. I mean, there's no really evidence to sh- show, but it seemed incredibly political uh, that she would hold off on this election when it, so, so far it had taken so, so long for these results to be or uh, it's been so, so long. that These results have been known and we knew who the winner was going to be, um, but there was just no acknowledgement of that and no real. Just acknowledgement of, of the reality of the situation and just to a point where it was clear with anyone, to anybody with two eyes looking at the situation logically uh, that Joe Biden had won and it was very easy to, as the word is, ascertain that's, that that was the case, but it just was not done. Um, in her letter, Murphy said she was never directly or indirectly pressured by any executive branch official, including those who work at the White House or the GSA. She defended her delay by saying she did not want to get ahead of the constitutional process of counting votes and picking a president, although that was, again, by in large part over. So she's complaining, of course, oh, we got a lot of negative messages, threats against me, which uh, you hate to see, obviously. But think about what's at stake here. Think about the stakes of literally our very democracy at this transition, like, critical resources that Biden needs um, to fight the myriad of problems, and the fact that Trump has essentially stopped governing, making this transition all the more important, especially during times of COVID and economic repression, or uh, uh, Great Depression, uh, it is all the more unconscionable, that is for sure. Trump, uh, in a tweet shortly after Murphy's announcement, made clear that he accepted it, Our case strongly continues. We will keep up the good fight, and I believe we will prevail. Again, saying this, continuing this fight uh, where pretty much, as we all know, he he has stopped caring about anything that happens in the country at this point and has pretty much focused fully and solely on trying to win this election, trying to like following the the latest back and forth the lawsuits. That that is seems to be all he cares about now. No regard for the broader well being of the country and, and what is going on right now as as we as we're gonna get into, there is some massive, massive scary problems happening outside of Washington, um that is that is just co- being completely ignored by by this White House and this government in general, uh, from both parties here. Um Michigan statewide electoral board approved his presidential vote tally on Monday, resisting pressure from Mr. Trump to delay the process and paving the way for Biden to receive its state's 16 electoral votes. In Pennsylvania, the state Supreme Court ruled against the Trump campaign and Republican allies, stating that roughly 8,000 ballots with signature or date issues must be counted. Um, most of Trump's Republican allies had stood by his side as he attempted to overturn Biden's victory, but on Monday, some of the uh, Senate's most senior Republicans sharply urged Ms. Murphy. Uh, to allow the transition to proceed, so it's not like she was. Yeah, it's not like she was. She'll have you believe that. Oh, I'm being some sort of bipartisan actor here. I'm trying to do the best thing for democracy. I'm not trying to jump the gun. I want to do what's right. But no, we got people like Lamar Alexander of Tennessee. You got not just Democrats, not just liberals, but Republicans coming out there and saying this that this has gone on for too long and is absolutely ridiculous and it is frankly an insult to the process, the democratic uh, process, and a slap in the face to every single person who voted in this election like this is america democracy has to happen at some point or another and it's not for emily uh whatever her name is to say when when it does like that is a emily murphy um to say when it does like that is not her her position is the voters decision and it's it's very very clear if you any anyone would tell you uh that for at least the last 2 weeks It has been very, very clear who the winner of this election is, uh, and the transition, especially in time like this, should have been allowed to happen as soon as possible. So it is good to see that. But um, when you have people like Senator Lamar Alexander of Tennessee, a senior Republican who is retiring this year, issuing his second call in the last three days for a prompt transition, um, who, by the way, Alexander is a close friend of Senator Mitch McConnell. Uh, when you're in public life, people remember the last thing you do, he says, and that seems to be uh, putting his neck out there a little bit. Uh, that seems to be what he wants to do. Earlier in the day, Senator Rob Portman of Ohio and Shelley Moore Capito of West Virginia, both strongly Republicans, Uh, released statements breaking from Mr. Trump and calling for Biden to begin receiving coronavirus national security briefings, something that he should definitely uh, have been receiving for a long time because we are entering such a critical stage and we're entering the second wave. We've got all this stuff going on now with the vaccine. It's a big, big deal. So in an op-ed in the Cincinnati Enquirer published on Monday, Portman acknowledged that a substantial majority of nearly 74 million Americans who supported President Trump questioned the legitimacy of this election, uh, but he insisted that voters needed to Understand that despite statewide efforts to recount votes, the initial determination showing Joe Biden with enough electoral votes to win has not changed. So that's going to be the real tough thing. How will Republicans, um, and how will Republicans deal with? How will they choose to manipulate their base? Who Trump apparently has a, obviously has an incredibly strong hold over. Like, what is the future here? This is the real question. What is the future here, uh, in terms of getting the base to accept elections legitimately in the future, um, and will they will they accept this election at, at some point will they believe that this election was uh was real was was authentic uh and will it matter if they do or don't like will will things just continue on without them or and will they just be forced to kind of live in their their own reality where they think democracy' is being stolen i mean I think that's a very very dangerous way to go go about things but if that's the way it is that's just the way it is um yeah, so meanwhile, President um, Michigan has certified its election results, making Biden's win official and rebuffing Trump's calls to um, hold off on things and, and get a sense for what is still to come. Um, meanwhile, Diane Feinstein, another interesting story I want to cover here quickly before we move on, Senator Diane Feinstein of California, the Senate's oldest member, said on Monday she would relinquish the top Democratic spot. On this year's committee next year, um, bowing to intense pressure by progressive Senate. She was not up to the task, clearly just mentally not up to the task of leading a committee like this and dealing with. It should should have been done before Amy Coney Barrett. If we had actually had a competent Democratic opposition uh, in that respect, it may have been a little bit better handled. It may have been a lot better handled. I don't know who that person would be, but it could have definitely been handled better by a more competent Democratic Senate. But she says, after serving the lead Democrat on the Judiciary Committee for, as the lead uh, Democrat on the Judiciary Committee for four years, I will not take the chairmanship or ranking member position in the next Congress, said Feinstein, who's 87 years old. Uh, she was just reelected, I believe, in 2018. So she's going to be a- around for, till at least 2024, uh, unless she, <laughs> two senators now, at least, that I've heard of them in the news uh, this week who are 87 it's just an absolutely horrific horrific thing that so many old people are governing governing us it's just an absolutely ins- just insane when people i don't think people realize i don't think people realize how much of the government is just people you would not want like driving alone after dark like it is a absolutely untenable situation um Senator Dick Durbin of Illinois is next in seniority, intends to produce the position, according to his spokeswoman. Durbin is also the Democratic whip, but caucus rules do not preclude him from doing both jobs. So, def- definitely something he will he will step into and probably run it very very similar to Diane Feinstein. Uh, progressives had been pushing Democratic leaders hard in recent weeks to bar Feinstein from returning to her post next year, when Democrats hope they will control the committee. They believe her that despite her towering status in the Senate, uh, Feinstein's record as a genteel dealmaker made her the wrong fit for a complete increasingly bruising partisan arena on the committee. Those stylistic differences have been exacerbated by definitely exacerbated by Feinstein's Advancing age. progressives were livid, for instance, when financing and praised Republicans for their handling of Amy Coney Barrett's Supreme Court nomination hearings last month, even though GOP leaders had broken the president and their own professed opposition to election year confirmations to fast-track the approval of President Trump's choice before he faced the voters. A photograph of a Californian Democrat hugging the of Republican chairman, Lindsey Graham, ricocheted around the Internet and drew condemnation for liberal groups. Um, yeah, this is a woman who, despite her protestations to... Thirteen-year-olds uh, clearly does not know uh, anymore what she is doing and uh, needs to take a back seat. All right, coming up next, we take a trip outside Washington to explore the economic and health news—the re- the latest uh, related to the novel coronavirus. Um, and that is what we will be doing. Right. After this, this is Newsflash. Thanks for listening. Some other things to know today. President Trump is reconstructing Mar-a-Lago for a possible post-presidency life. Senator Kelly Loeffler plans to return the campaign trail after two negative virus test results. Republicans splinter into two groups all around Trump. And Biden names Janet Yellen to the Treasury. So now, as we welcome you back to News Flash today, we're unfortunately talking about what has been going on lately with the coronavirus, and we do have, unfortunately, a lot of stories to talk about with that, so we're going to get right into it and start talking, so uh, we'll give you the latest with... Infections began rising sharply in the United States in September. The growth was driven by large outbreaks in the upper Midwest. States like North Dakota and Wisconsin soon became the hardest hit in the nation relative to their size, and their region continues to struggle Now, though, the whole country's daily average of new cases is as high as it's ever been. Over 171,000, the most rapid growth is happening elsewhere. Nine states are reporting more than twice as many new cases a day as they did two weeks ago, and none of them are in the Midwest. Those states Arizona, California, Delaware, Louisiana, Maryland, New Hampshire, New Mexico, Pennsylvania, and of all places, Vermont, who really had it under control more than anybody, um, this still reflects a national escalating uh, crisis. Officials warn that things will only get worse if people regard, disregard warnings in travel about travel and get together for the Thanksgiving holidays. With all those airports that we've seen packed, people possibly spreading some germs, um, Uh, Let me be very clear. A Thanksgiving gathering this year may very well lead to a funeral, says Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham of New Mexico, whose state is home to five of the ten metropolitan areas in the country where case reports are rising the fastest. The virus is at large, the governor said. Know the risks and respect them. So, yeah, that is definitely something that you need to take into account with your family, especially if you're going a very large distance there. Um, 45 states are seeing su- sustained increases, and in seven states added more cases in the seven-day period that ended Sunday than any other week of the pandemic. Major metropolitan areas that are reporting new cases at or near record levels, or across the country, are all across the country and in continent, including Al- Pittsburgh, Albuquerque, Baltimore, and San Diego. Uh, some of them have been pretty bad for a while, like El Paso. They're coping with the flood of hospitalizations that generally follow a couple of weeks behind a rising tide in new cases. A major hospital group in Arizona, Banner Health, began banning most visitors from the facility Sunday night because of the worsening spread of the virus. Yeah, Things are just getting absolutely bad here. And the the problem is the reason I think why we see so like just this lack of cohesion, this lack of. Uh, just a coherent response to the strategy is because there hasn't been one. There has been no leadership. There's no public influence. There's no one saying, this is how we're going to get you through this. And no one's providing any financial support. No one's providing any support of any kind. Americans are just at this point going at it alone and hoping hoping for the best. Like state government, local government failing at just imp- unprecedented levels, and because they're not receiving any support from the federal government. It has to start with somebody at the top who is kind of emanating a clear plan. And while Biden's plan may not be that good, may not be that efficient, at least it will most likely be something more coherent than what we have now. Uh, and that's something I think that every American is looking forward to in a large way just get some some sense of clear direction on this virus when we have no public plan no sense of what's next what's to come no one telling us how things actually are i mean that's we saw with that's what made andrew cuomo so effective like people knew what was going on they knew what was uh they had to do and they kind of knew what the future held now what is andrew cuomo doing He's, he's not even doing that he's just yelling at people about Why, why they should, uh, why they're stupid for thinking this or that about the schools and how they need to read the law? Like that is not in any way, (laughs) it's not in any way helpful to what we need, Um, and just does not really really kind of respond to the uh, problems at hand here. Um, Unfortunately, if our cases and hospitalizations continue to increase, we will need to uh, issue further restrictions to protect our healthcare system and prevent more deaths. Says this uh, Arizona lady, in. Um, Banner Health in La Lo- this is Los Angeles County, uh, where the hospitals remain under intense strain. Officials turn are turning, uh, however, reluctantly to impose or reimpose restrictions in the hope of flattening the curve. Uh, LA County has been averaging more than 3,500 uh, cases a day lately, and they were barring indoor restaurant dining. Um, and the outdoor dining would also have to shut down as well, they said down there in California. So, yeah very, very tough situation and there's just so, it's really awful because there is no economic guidance, there's no economic leadership in that respect there's no uh there's no one coming out there and saying, "Well, this is what we gotta do we're gonna send you a check here we're gonna send you uh this we're this close to the vaccine. this is what we need to know like it is a very, very tough situation so um in the world um the u s <laughs> right now um, is making up a pretty sizable chunk of the world coronavirus cases. I'd say about around more than than one fifth uh of the coronavirus cases. Um, at this point, uh, we are seeing a t- on November twenty second, we saw one hundred forty one thousand thirty four new cases, a fifty four percent increase, which is somewhat flattening, but of course, the deaths right behind them, uh. 843 deaths, a 64% increase on November 22nd. Uh, So that is a sense of what is going on. It's a little bit, uh, the curve is a little uh, more flat in the world as a whole. But let's talk about some good news. The vaccine here. The drug maker AstraZeneca announced... On Monday, that an early analysis of some of the late-stage clinical trials conducted in the United Kingdom and Brazil showed that its coronavirus vaccine was 70.4% effective in presenting COVID-19, suggesting the world could eventually have at least three working vaccines and more supply to help curb the pandemic. That's what we need. So just... As many vaccines as we can get it can be distributed as quickly as possible around the world. And that would, of course, help with some of these supply issues. Uh, Fauci saying that possibly 20 million people could be vaccinated before January 1st, um, which is pretty encouraging. So the British Swedish company, AstraZeneca, uh, which has been developing the vaccine with the help of the University of Oxford, became the third major vaccine developer this month to announce encouraging early results following Pfizer and Moderna, both of which said that their vaccines were about. effective in late-stage studies. AstraZeneca's results are a reassuring sign of the safety of the vaccine. It came under global scrutiny after AstraZeneca temporarily pushed trials in September to investigate potential safety issues after a participant in Britain developed a neurological illness. Oxford and AstraZeneca said they would submit their data to regulators in Britain, Europe, and Brazil and seek emergency authorization. So that is another third vaccine there uh, that will be absolutely critical in terms of just um in terms of slowing the spread and inter- not just slowing the spread just in-, in terms of increasing uh and getting life back to normal and actually like restarting society in some shape or form which is definitely a welcome thing for all here uh again we're more reporting here for the new york times about this we've had all new york times reporting so far um AstraZeneca's results are a reassuring sign of the safety of the vaccine. It came under, again, this scrutiny, so we know it's a little bit safer than what we thought. Um, The company said its early analysis was based on 131 coronavirus cases. The trials used two different dosing regimens, one of which was 90% effective in preventing COVID-19, and the other was 62% effective. The regimen that was 90% effective involved Using a halved first dose and a standard second dose, Oxford and AstraZeneca also said that there was no hospitalized or severe cases of the coronavirus in anyone who received the vaccine and that they had seen a reduction in asymptomatic infections, suggesting the vaccine could reduce transmission. So that is something that would be really, really helpful because, of, of course, those asymptomatic uh, transmissions are what makes this disease so hard to stop. Uh, AstraZeneca's vaccine is expected to come with a relatively simple storage requirements, uh, which would be an asset once it gets rolled out. So, easier to spread around the globe, more efficient, more can be packaged and sent at one time. Um, the company has said it anticipates the vaccine will require refrigeration, though it has not provided details about how long and what temperature it can be kept. Moderna's vaccine can be kept uh, for up to a month in the temperature of an ordinary refrigerator. Pfizer's can be kept for up to five days in conventional refrigerators or in special coolers for up to 15 days, but otherwise needs ultra cold storage. So they better it's going to be a whole other thing they have to deal with. They contend what they're um, in terms of just getting this vaccine around properly to people. Uh, AstraZeneca has said it aims to bring data from this st- uh, from studies of the vaccine being conducted overseas to so the Food and Drug Administration, which would mean the agency would likely review and authorize a vaccine before late state's data are ready on how well the vaccine works in American participants. British regulators have been uh, have already been conducting a so-called rolling review of the vaccine so pretty much just watching it take place as things go so the review can take a shorter period of time today's uh, marks an important milestone in our fight against the pandemic as chief Chiefs executive Pascal Soriot said. Uh, the vaccine's efficacy and safety confirmed that it will be highly effective against COVID-19 and will have immediate impact on this public health emergency. So good, good stuff there. AstraZeneca could significantly strengthen the global effort to produce a vaccine uh, to create population immunity. The price of the shot at 3 to $4 is a fraction of that of some other potential vaccines. And AstraZeneca, because I mean, maybe because they're a European company and uh, somewhat slightly normal historically and that's that's going to be something we're really going to have to watch and we will be continuing to keep an eye on here in terms of our newsflash editorializing is who's going to have access to this thing how easy is it going to be and how cheaply can families get it and people who actually need it like will they be gouged out of house and home for it or will there be more like how how big will the financial companies um, or the uh, big pharma companies like just rake on this issue is kind of what we are going to be trying to figure out here. Uh, AstraZeneca's results because this significantly strengthen this, this whole thing here. Um, and AstraZeneca has pledged, pledged to make it available at cost around the world until at least July, 2021 in poor countries in perpetuity. Uh, and that's really what it should be. Like, this is something that, I mean, you know, Jonas Salk with the polio vaccine, he put it, he said the thing belongs to people. And in terms of how much public money has been poured into this, uh, how much effort has been poured into this, it is just absolutely wrong and criminal, I think, that people aren't getting this at a fair price. It, it just got to be 2 $3 per shot is really, I think, the, the, the most it should be, the most I could justify it being. But uh, we're going to have to keep an eye on it because there's not too much information because All this is very, very um, back and forth at this point. Uh, Meanwhile, as Thanksgiving approaches, uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo on Monday announced new restrictions in parts of the state where virus cases are rising. The restrictions include a zone in upper Manhattan. The first time the state has rolled back reopening in the borough under the program of targeting so-called microclusters. So. Cuomo warned current patterns held the state would hit 6,000 hospitalizations in another three weeks. The increase could become steeper if people continue gathering for uh, Thanksgiving in the coming weeks, which he called the 30 uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas as well, uh, which he called the 37 days of the highest social socialization of the year. Uh, The governor again warned residents not to travel for the holidays, and the state has imposed a 10 person limit on private gatherings in hopes of limiting small parties that he has said have contributed to the resurgence of the virus in the state this fall. Parts of the upper Manhattan, uh, which including Washington Heights, will now be a yellow zone under the state's tiered, color-coded restriction system. Uh, and that will limit gatherings to 25 people with houses of worship limited to 50% capacity. Restaurants can serve up to four people at a table. Um, he also said Staten Island is a problem a particular problem More than 1 million travelers were screened on airports on Sunday. So people are traveling, uh, hopefully we're in mass, but, uh, are still very much traveling. So we'll have to see what this does. It's definitely not gonna be anything good. The question is how bad is it going to be? Um, Boris Johnson, meanwhile, is going to be lifting restrictions on many businesses in England next week. We'll see how that goes. Um, the plan will keep substantial restrictions on pubs and restaurants and move that risk friction with some of Johnson's own lawmakers who fear that the hospitality trade will be hit hard by limitations. That's a big, big deal. Uh, and of course they were emboldened by the, um, the new, new news of their, their vaccine over at Oxford coming through. Well, uh, that's very, very encouraging. The governor of California is in quarantine after, uh, with his family after a possible exposure, um, and they've all tested negative, so that's a good thing for them. Uh, a CDC advisory has also discussed uh, which Americans should get shots first, so we know we got a good idea of what we can expect for that. Um. <clears throat> A subgroup of the committee had already stated that the health care workers, which total about 21 million, should be the first people to have uh, get vaccinations. Would make sense. On Monday, it also recommended the next residents of long term care facilities should be in that initial group. Next would be essential workers, then adults with high risk medical conditions, who, uh, and those who are 65 or older. Those would be the people kind of going down the line there. Um, some of the questions the committee considered Monday also included whether people who have already had COVID 19 should be vaccinated should not be vaccinated until there is an ample supply. Uh, Dr. Robert Atmar, a committee member and infectious disease specialist at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, said at the beginning, where it's a resource limited vaccine, my opinion is we need to try and target as best we can to those who know who that we know are susceptible who are going to be more likely to die from this disease making it less lethal if the people who have it are only asymptomatic and the people who do have it or who are not going to be asymptomatic if they do get it are going to be vaccinated so that's going to be something that will definitely get things in the right direction but another com- committee member Grace Lee a pediatric pediatrics professor at Stanford University School of Medicine pushed back saying much remains unknown about long term immunity so there's some dis- disagreement there whether essential workers like police firefighters and teachers as well as transportation workers, should be in the second group to get the vaccine uh, is another question they were considering. Uh, Peter uh, Sizzle Guy weighed in. Dr. Peter Sizzle Guy, a professor of pediatrics at UCLA, said, uh, to me, the issue of ethics is very significant, very important for this country, and clearly favors the essential worker group. Um, and especially in Los Angeles, there was a high proportion of minority, low-income, and low-education workers in this group. So they, it's going to be important that they are treated fairly with that uh the aclu meanwhile stood a meat packing plant over measures to protect workers from the coronavirus um which is another thing to watch this kind of worker violation worker right violation that we have seen uh time and time again so finally just to kind of get a look at this this vaccine so uh we have six vaccines approved for early or limited use at the point uh, at this point and those are some of the best ideas that we know um in terms of the vaccines that are kind of in fa- in, in limited approval for early use 13 are large-scale efficacy tests and that's kind of stage before they're publicly publicly announced and that is the uh the moment that we are at um But we we don't really know right now about in terms of a timeline, in terms of when people are going to start hearing about people getting vaccinated. Um, And that is going to be definitely something to watch in the future. All right, we're going to switch gears a little bit. We're going to talk about Donald Trump's legacy uh, whenever it comes to foreign policy and how that has been very oftentimes misinterpreted. So we'll get to that next. You are listening to News Flash, ladies and gentlemen, episode 452. We're talking a little bit about Donald Trump today. And as he heads out of the White House, what is his legacy on issues of war and peace? Um, Hindsight, at least in the context of American politics, is kind of a fickle thing. It basically is now widely accepted the Iraq War was a terrible idea. And Donald Trump in 2016 harnessed 15 years of American pain and claimed he would end it castigating George W. Bush in particular, saying the 2003, uh, 2003 invasion of Iraq may have been his worst decision in history and kind of a very, very memorable moment there. And really something interesting, I think, that kind of set it up was just the the really got this perception this kind of populist perception that we would see from from Donald Trump that was kind of a a pro or the, the myth of kind of the Donald the dove uh just turned out to be absolutely uh completely untrue um and that is something that a lot of people just have not been able to kind of come across so um in really in terms of what we've seen in terms of the actual realities of the situation, there just has not been a uh in terms of a, there just has not been a broader change in in foreign policy um like we know that very very clearly adam sirwer uh, writing about this in the Atlantic uh, was very, very. I mean, it's like we've seen time and time again. Like the the first thing Trump did as a foreign, um, uh, as a foreign, like as a foreign policy figure, his first major foreign policy move was to go in Saudi Arabia, right, and be like, "We just gave them a bunch of weapons, folks. We gave them a bunch of weapons." They love us. They love our weapons with our great American companies. Like th- this is really what he's trying to do. China, America firstities um the the and kind of trumpify the uh national security state. Uh really, most libertarians and just left and right libertarians were kinda of horrified by the election of Donald Trump. There was a lot of thinking among some that the compromise uh with the Trump administration on a few of his more illiberal policies was a small to pay to ensure a more peaceful foreign policy, and there has been kind of some kind of contradictions. There has been efforts that we've seen from Trump to to pull troops back, but it's always really kind of fallen short when the generals get in there, because it's really unlike anything that we've ever seen with another president. Actually, I, I'm sure it isn't, but it's never really been this clear where we say, uh, where we see a president say, "Yeah, I want to get troops out. Uh, I'm trying to get troops out," but then nothing ever happens because the generals kind of just step in and be like, Oh no, no no no. you don't want to do that, Mr. Trump. Like this it's not a bad idea. Why don't you go why don't you go take a take a view rounds on the take uh, shoot a few holes. Like come back and after you played around, like and think about it then. He's like, okay. And then just forgets about it. And they continue the, the blob, uh unadulterated as they as they always have. They seem to believe that current favor of the 45th president, the administration will be less amenable to a neoconservative foreign policy agenda. But one be, need be a neoconservative to be hawkish, and Donald Trump is most certainly a hawk. Despite Trump's hawkish, hawkishness, Senator Rand Paul apparently believes that by approving Trump's nominees, he will wield influence over the president's foreign policy, something that he tried to do um, slightly early on, and that really he, he kinda has been a long time um a long time friend of the 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 defense industry. So here's a here's a clip from Al Jazeera about it. Uh in the wake this is just this is actually from the like this is b- uh, before his first election. This is September seventeenth, twenty sixteen. It's become fashionable in some quarters to suggest Hillary Clinton is more dangerous than Donald Trump. More of a warmonger. While her Republican opponent is an isolationist, a non-interventionist, Hillary is a hawk and Donald is a dove. It's complete nonsense. Don't take my word for it. Just listen to the Donald himself. I'm more militaristic than anybody in this room. I'm going to bomb the out of them. Waterboarding would be fine. When you get these terrorists... Like, that was really a lot of his... Um... A lot of his entire kind of political um, strategy there it was like it's a very kind of weird mix of talking out of both sides of his mouth. We've seen him trying to trying to do that in multiple respects um, with talking, especially in criminal justice form. Uh, that was a big issue where he was kind of like what are uh, double sided on in a very, very weird way. Um, well, a lot of it was like, oh, I I want to get the troops out. Like we're we're spending a bunch of like a bunch of this nonsense on these foreign wars. He would say that all the time during the campaign. Uh, but look at what we had almost starting a war with Iran, um, by killing Soleimani. All the comments about expanding the drone war, uh, lowering the rules of engagement, more civilian casualties, more bombs dropped, everything like that. It was just kind of considered unadulterated but interestingly enough the national security people weren't really happy with him they came out in droves for Biden um but that was really just because of the fact that I mean Biden would kind of allow them to continue relatively unabated uh but really what what the difference was I think really that once you come down to the way that they treat it like Biden treated the national security state Uh, with a little bit more respect. He wouldn't get bored, uh, which the best part of Trump's presidency is how I think probably one of the best is with how little respect he treated the national security, uh, national security state, while still just owing to the fact that he's a personal demon and just someone who loves kind of carnage and destruction, if he thinks it'll benefit him. Um, He continued unabated and oftentimes enhanced. Uh, the U.s mechanisms mechanisms of war while in office but he the, here's the thing and here's the difference this is why all the national security state people hated him where they will love and overwhelmingly support someone who just wants to be a literally wanted to be a CIA agent He was like looked at this oh that's so cool to see what the CIA does that's just awesome man I love that stuff uh, like he like Joe Biden loves the CIA Joe Bi- or Donald Trump couldn't care less. He he thinks all those intelligence people are like they're they're untrustworthy, and he's right. He is overwhelmingly right. Like he seems to have much more affinity for like the the big handsome generals who are out there, and they're all their stars and stripes than those shifty, shady intelligence guys who he gets bored um, while getting the briefings. And that's probably something that, uh, when, if you think about it, is going to be for the better in terms of not just for Americans, but for a lot of people outside of America. In terms of him just absolutely being uninterested in, in whatever awful things they were trying to get him to do. And his lack of interest, his lack of respect in what they were trying to tell him demoralized him so much that they were just actually, like, the the wheels did grind a little bit. But in, in certain other areas, in a lot of other areas, the the important thing to remember is a lot of stuff continued in a very detrimental way uh, to a lot of people. So that is definitely something to, to keep an eye on here. Um, so yeah. We are going to uh we're going to go move on, I'm sure. Well, I'm sure we're we'll talking a little bit about that uh that story in the future, the the hawkishness and the dovishness of of, of Trump and Joe Biden, but uh I mean Trump has a co- uh has a definitely has a complicated legacy on that, but I mean we do know. We do very well know um what is going on. And we, we know what Trump did in the, the and, and, and it's very, very clear that the, the heaviness of his, his war record outweighs whatever kind of disrespect he may have thrown to the CIA or kind of times where he may have pissed some people off in the national security state. Like things really did not change. Things just got a little bit more run down, a little bit more pathetic when it comes to that front. And it's convenient to see how that'll change. Under Joe Biden and his new someone who's going to be really leading the a lot of the, the blob, the national security state, uh, Tony Blinken. On Sunday, uh, word got out that Joe Biden planned to nominate Tony Blinken, his longtime former uh, foreign policy consigliere, to be the next secretary of state. Out came the profiles. New York Times called Blinken steamingly with approval a defender of global alliances again that is something that was a huge huge difference between the trump and the biden foreign policy he actually cared about uh maintaining the u.s position on the global stage that's another big thing that freaked out these these national security security people all these this this web of united states hegemony this control over everything the world over uh ability to pull all the world's strings and often not do it for the interests of the American people, but uh, to the detriment of the people on the ground, and really for American corporations, uh, that's really what those alliances served to to break. And Trump wasn't trying to break them because of any uh, goodwill towards the people or uh, desire to bring change. He just didn't care. He was just an incompetent manager of global empire, uh, more and more incompetent than, than the people before him. But um, Washington Post said about Blinken... Uh, that he was one of a suite of Biden's foreign policy and national security picks with decades long careers working at the highest levels of government and a deep respect for institutions. How wonderful. Uh, there were some items about the rock band he fronts, and an old video of him and Grover, yes, the Sesame Street legend, talking about uh, refugees, which made the rounds much to the delight of everybody. Into the scene came happy, uh, into this happy scene of just a joy in Grover and Sesame Street. Everyone's just so, so. Uh, happy, like, Tony Blinken, let's go! Woohoo! Defender of Global Alliances, cares about maintaining U.S. hegemony on the global stage. Just a, a standard member of the Blob state, back in power. Let's go, baby! So cool. Um, But, here's the thing. Traitor! American Prospect ed- Editor David Dayen, uh, who recently had the audacity to link a story from his outlet about what Blinken's been up to recently. um, And that that really... Um, got people pissed off. Here's what the kind of the facts and story, uh, from prospects Jonathan Geyer. Prospects, by the way, great, great article, our great, great outlet that we have used many times and will use many times on the show throughout the Biden administration. Uh, so here's what he's been up to. Blinken launched West Exec Advisors with the fellow Obama national security chiefs in 2018. West Exec's very name is a reference to the avenue that runs along the White House. Uh, suggested that its founders were trading off their recent experience in the Oval Office and were angling for positions in the next administration. Blinken became a partner at a private equity firm named Pine Island 2. Uh, it was quite a change for someone who had spent most of their career in government and recently served as Vice President Biden's National Security Advisor from 2019 to 2013 as Deputy Secretary of State from 2015 to 2017. He and Michelle Flournoy, a former senior defense official, registered in the firm in Delaware, of course the Home state of Joe Biden, and the the best place to register any kind of, uh, company anywhere, uh, kind of the the tax haven of the United States if there ever was one, and they had a party to open their downtown uh, D.C. suite with the Hontos from the Obama administration. Just kind of you, you get the sense here, uh, if you're getting kind of this, sensing some sort of a revolving door. Uh, uh, the swamp, the deep state, the cesspool. If these are some of the words creeping in your mind here, your, your mind is probably in the right place. Uh, who's this firm advising? West exec staffers cited non-disclosure agreements and declined to name the clients, but in the conversation with members of the firm, I learned that Blinken and Florinoy used their networks to build up a large client b- b- database at the intersection of tech and defense. An Israeli surveillance startup turned to them. So did a major U.S. defense company, Google billionaire Eric Schmidt, and Fortune 100 companies went to them as well. Um, whatever you think of the Blink and Pink overall, this certainly seems at least relevant, at the very least. What our future Secretary of State was doing, who like who were they advising, like literally what they did. It wasn't even reported that critically. It was just like, hey, here's what Tony Blinken did. He started a consultant, consulting firm. Uh, he participate in the society. It wasn't necessarily reported as bad, which is definitely really interesting to, uh, to see, uh, that they took it that way, which is it was very very interesting. Um, but our fe- the thing is, our future secretary of state spent the last few years getting, by the way, incredibly rich off his White House ties and raking in money from defense contractors and big tech big wigs. Like this is how this swamp works. This is something that people should know. This is our top diplomat who's going to be influencing our face on the global stage. Uh, I'm, I'm really glad to actually have known this and I can add it to the other bad things that I know about Joe, uh, Joe Biden and Blinken and this administration in general. Thanks for the American Prospect. Let's let's take a moment and give a round of applause to journalism. Thank you, David Dayen. American Prospect, great stuff. But here's the thing, believe it or not, not everyone was so grateful. The replies to Dave, David, Dan, Sweet are virtually an endless chain of people tearing into him for having the audacity to say a critical word about Joe Biden. Like he is—he is the god emperor now. He is the god emperor in in liberal society. There will never be an acceptable time to criticize him, and that's what if you're to the left of like. Uh, I don't know Elizabeth Warren or whatever in the Democratic Party. It is now your responsibility. It is your responsibility to force these people to see some sense about this guy and how he should not be the end all be all for the progressive movement or the the Democratic movement in general. Uh, I don't care. Read one representative reply. Making money isn't crime. Get over it. Uh, Dayan highlighted one particularly eye watering response from a woman named Elizabeth Rogers. Uh, Remember, folks, if you lose a job at the end of administration, you must starve for the next four years in order to be approved for returning to work in another administration. So that's that's literally what what the idea was. Uh, And day in response, I guess the first word read was too subtle for the bunches of defenders of foreign policy blobs swarming into my mentions uh and like so no one seems to be able to want to read nobody wants to say hey what did our diplomats do like this is why america this is probably if i had to name the biggest problem with american culture this is what it would be a bunch of people who just fall in love with the government and the first aspect of the, the the first the first instinct of a lot of these people is to look at the people representing them and clearly doing them wrong and clearly doing these um kind of suspicious things, these kind of dishonest things, and rushing to their defense because they see themselves as on the same team and not adversarial. There's no there's no kind of relationship like that where there's like, you're supposed to be representing, you're supposed to be doing good things for me. No. You're my friend. I owe an allegiance to you. You don't owe any allegiance to me. I have to defend you. And anyone else who is criticizing Blinken from the left, they're breaking that sacred alliance. They have to be there. They have to stick by me. Uh, and they have to stick by you because it's much worse than what the Republicans will have and we can't get anything better ever. Like, that, like that is the minds of these people. And they think it's some weird allegiance kind of culture where if you had any other normal country, any other normal relationship between the government and the people, there would be serious questions. And asking questions wouldn't be such a problem in a healthy democracy. Um and again, literally, the funny part, and the, obviously the funny part is there is a wide difference between uh, cash in through corporate shadiness and starve there. That's a, it's a huge middle ground. Uh, Dan's uh, tweet also attracted notable attention from Vox's Aaron Rootbar, uh, who has gained a ginormous following thanks to his dedicated um, pastime of taking th- things Trump says. Uh, taking the videos from smaller accounts and then posting them like literally making his whole career off of <laughs> criticizing Trump for literally the smallest things uh response Blinken participated in society the horror like all these just absolute hacks like these absolute hacks the moment the table turns the, i didn't honestly I did not think it would be this bad the moment the table turns um and theres some legitimate criticism of liber- liberals who go around. These people freak out. They lose their sense of self. It is absolutely insane. Uh, Rupert later walked his suite back saying it had been too glib, but his initial reaction was telling enough. Dipping your hands in the endless money spigot of Washington lobbying is just being part of society. It's how it's how things work. This is how they know. This is how they understand things. The reason why they don't like Trump is because Trump upset the boat. He upset the game. It's not because he locked those kids away. It's not because of any of the, of the other bad things he did. It's not because he let 250,000 people plus die from the coronavirus. Uh, no, it's because he set upset the rules of the game. He upset society, as these people call it. And that is what they're trying to bring back. And that is why we must see them. I mean, I think just just as much as the right-wing people, the people who want to go back to, to normal, go back to brunch, go back to the way things were, go back to society, as Aaron Rupert called it, are people we have to watch for just as much in these upcoming four years. It's been a pleasure today, everybody. It's been Newsflash.